Hey, welcome to the Neighbors Church podcast. My name is Dan, and this is the first installment of our pillar series. Neighbors is being built upon six particular pillars, word and spirit, prayer and faith, family and hospitality. And so for this first session, we're going to be talking about the word. We're actually not going to have a session on the Holy Spirit and his interaction with us through the Bible because we did two sessions on the Holy Spirit in our value series, and I would refer you back to those. But for today, we want to hit pillar number one, word, the word. Neighbors is being built on the word. Word in Christianity is really just a shorthand for the Bible. And so it's 2019, and we live here in San Diego in a modern urban environment. This is where progressive ideas are being generated and spread to the rest of the culture. And that being the case, we need to ask a very reasonable question. Why would we be building our lives around an ancient book? Uh, This book is thousands of years removed from us. It's multitudes of cultures removed from us. Of course, I want to tell you why. All of us are building our life on some sort of story. We're all asking these types of questions. Why am I here? Is there meaning in this world? Why do bad things happen? What's going to happen when I die? And we all answer these questions through unconscious stories. And the Bible is a story that proposes answers to the quandaries of the human experience. It's, of course, not the only story. There are thousands of stories that we humans tell each other, that we learn from each other, that we tell ourselves to answer the questions of life. I want to just highlight as we get going here a couple common stories that we are swimming in in this current cultural moment in which we exist. The first is the story of scientism. The story of scientism. Since the Enlightenment of the 18th century, many have said there's nothing but the material world. There's no God or afterlife because there's nothing apart from the physical world that we can see, touch, taste, test, feel, all of those things. At its root, this is the story of naturalism and atheism. So in general terms, the story goes something like this. Once upon a time, there was nothing, and then bang, there was something, and then through random cause and effect of chemicals bumping into each other, life came about. Then through eons, that life took many different forms, eventually producing us. Meaning is made up by our brains because we are social herd animals, and that instinct helped us out-survive other species. When we die, we return to nothing. And this gigantic cosmic accident continues to unfold without our thoughts or our questions or our answers or our presence. Now, <coughs> excuse me, this story has created a new faith community of sorts that abide by its primary teaching, scientism. I want you to note something very important. There is a difference between science and scientism. There's a difference between science and scientism. Science is the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. In contrast to this definition, philosopher of science Tom Sorrell says, scientism is the belief. Highlight that word belief. Scientism is the belief that natural science is the most valuable part of human learning because it's the most authoritative, it's the most serious or beneficial. So generally speaking, the story of scientism says that the hard sciences like chemistry, biology, physics, astronomy, those sciences, they are the only 
true way in which we can gain genuine knowledge of reality. Scientism believes that if we seek answers to our big questions from the realms of theology, our thoughts on God, if we do that, scientism and its story says, well, when we do that, we're only toying around with, you know, our subjective feelings and conjecture and myths and lies. And, and here's why scientism is a faith story in and of itself. I want you to remember that Oxford definition of science that I just read to you. Let me read it again. Science is the intellectual and practical activity encompassing the systematic study of the structure and behavior of the physical and natural world through observation and experiment. So science is the process of studying the observable. Science asks questions, it forms hypotheses and theories, and then it tests those hypotheses and theories to find out if they hold true to reality. Science cannot, nor does it attempt to, nor will it ever answer the deeper questions within the human experience. Questions like, why do we exist? Or what happens after we no longer exist? Do we go on? Science is true as it studies, observes, tests, and retests that which can be tested and retested. But the mysterious and the metaphysical and the intangible things like love and eternity and God and meaning, these are all things that we humans, we intuitively know that they're there and we have questions about them, but they can't be observed. They can't be tested. They can't be retested. So scientism, the story of scientism, puts ultimate faith in only the observable. And it trusts, scientism makes a decision to believe that there is no God, there is no meaning, and nothing happens afterwards. Scientism, in many ways, requires an unwavering faith that there really is nothing. Now, many, many intelligent people, uh, and really in increasing numbers in our secularizing society, are embracing this story of scientism. But there are still just as many humans that they just can't make it over the hump. They just can't believe that there's just absolutely nothing. It just takes too much faith for them to say, yeah, we're just a cosmic accident and there's no meaning apart from what I make up in this world. And that brings us to the second popular story in this current cultural moment in which we exist. And we're all swimming in this. And it's the story of spiritualism. It goes something like this. I know that there's something beyond all of this. I know that there's some sort of God. I just don't know what he or she or it does. Maybe God is involved with this world. Maybe not. And so the story of spiritualism takes thousands of forms. Here in urban centers like San Diego, the story of spiritualism often looks like an amalgam of Western Christian ideals combined with some forms of Eastern mysticism, hence the explosion of mindfulness apps in all of our major corporations as we're discovering how to kind of biohack the brain and calm things down using Eastern practices, but still based on Christian morals in the world we live in and the society we live in. It's usually a combination of like some new age spirituality stuff, so the popularity of crystals. And all of a sudden, the, the growing population of people making trips to Peru to drink some ayahuasca tea and find their inner deity. Um, 
There's usually a combination of some self-help antidotes in the stories of spiritualism that we swim in, uh, hence the growing industry of uh, human optimization, self-help, and biohacking. And then within the, the, the story of spiritualism, and especially in Western society in this generation, there's usually a therapist involved. And so the point being, if we can't believe that there's nothing, the story of scientism, then we will grasp for anything to make sense of our experience in this world, the story of spiritualism. You know, a couple months back on that therapist piece, a couple months back in the, the Wall Street Journal, they released an article saying that millennials are the therapy generation. It's interesting to me. It feels like we are dying as a society in our anxiety and therapists have become the high priest saviors of our blended kind of spiritual stories. The story, of spirit, the story of spiritualism, it tells us that we can pick and define God ourselves. And many forms of this story say that we are actually God ourselves. And our meaning is whatever we make it, as our hearts or our crystals or our therapists guide us. Uh, we, need to, we don't need to worry about what happens after we die. Because in the story of spiritualism, God would only do what we think would be best for us in this life and in the afterlife. In both of these stories, ultimately, at the center of them, scientism and spiritualism, is self. Ourselves. We humans, we are bent on answering the questions of the human experience through self and for the sake of self. Now, as you're listening to this, if you are being introduced to Christianity or maybe a friend turned you on to this podcast, I certainly do not want to diminish anyone's intelligence, nor do I want to diminish anybody's integrity. These stories that we tell ourselves, they are literally our best attempts at making sense of our existence and making sense of our experience. And I personally, I want you to know I have lived thoroughly out of each of these stories at different stages of my life. In college, I was a geology major. And so when I first became a Christian, was introduced to the Bible, I thought Genesis 1 was the craziest thing I had ever read in my life. It really upset me a lot, and it upset me for decades. Uh, I, I lived the story of spiritualism heavily. Uh, I found Jesus via a group of former heroin addicts studying the Celestine prophecy, uh, which was teaching me to see auras and become one with the universal intelligence. And so I lived in the story of scientism, and then uh, through a series of events, I was introduced to AA and NI, or NA, excuse me, due to my rough and tumble lifestyle which got me involved with higher power and spirituality, and then I embraced this life of spiritualism. I lived these things. And on the note that the millennials are the therapy generation, you need to know I have a therapist. I'm not dogging therapy. What I'm wanting to highlight is that all of us are living according to some story. That's the big idea. And then we have to ask ourselves, is the story that we're basing our lives on, is the way that we're answering these questions true to reality? Does it answer our deep questions in accord with reality as it is? The Bible is a story. It's a story that includes you because it's a story about all humanity. It's a story of intimate partnership and loving relationship. You are just as much a character in the Bible story as, as is Moses and David and Daniel, Peter, James, John. The biblical story, what it is, is it's this raw expose on how our self-made stories rip everything apart 
but how God makes the ultimate sacrifice to heal it all. And at the center of this story is this God who made us. He's patient with us, even as we wreck his world and each other. And this God, he longs to save us from ourselves. And so the Bible is a story of death and destruction, salvation and redemption. And just like the stories of scientism and spiritualism, the Bible proposes answers to our biggest questions, questions about God and life and evil, good, suffering, and meaning. The Bible does not deny the findings of science. The Bible does not say science is not true. That's, that's crazy. What the Bible does deny, though, is the story of scientism. The Bible unequivocally says that there is much more beyond what we can see and measure and test with our physical eyes. And the Bible does not deny the the spiritual ideas told in the stories of spiritualism. What the Bible does is it unapologetically clarifies what all of those spiritual realities are and how we humans interact with them. And the Bible certainly does not condemn therapy. The Bible actually tells the story of why our world is so broken, why our souls are so broken, and why we actually need each other as humans to support and guide one another. So the guys at the Bible Project have put together this great little summary video on the story of the Bible, like the overarching story that the Bible tells. And so rather than taking up too much time, I'll just let you guys watch this little six-minute video. The Bible is an important book. But it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, 
even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile. And that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil, than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. So good. The Bible story is just, it's so amazing and it encompasses everything. And that's why we're building Neighbors Church on the Bible, because it is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we believe that Jesus is the answer to everything. And so, of course, uh, there are thousands of years of Christian philosophy and tradition that have produced these intellectually robust reasons that we can and should trust the Bible as a true story. And there's literally piles of evidence pointing to the integrity of the texts, the, the, yeah, the different texts of the Bible. And there's no way for us to cover those exhaustively. In the life of our church, we'll visit many of those uh, traditions and many of those reasons for trusting the Bible. There's just one big idea that I want to emphasize in this teaching as to why in 2019 in San Diego, in this progressive city, we would submit ourselves to the Bible as our authority. Big idea, the big reason that we submit to the Bible is because Jesus did. Jesus did. And we know that Jesus submitted to the Bible because the Bible is a record of what he did. 
It is a record of the things that he said. What we have recorded in the Gospels, those are historical biographies of Jesus, and they are eyewitness testimonies to the things that he did and to the things that he said. Let me give you an example. Luke's opening words of his Gospel say, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself, Luke says, have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, probably a a well-to-do friend that had conscripted Paul to do this work. And he tells Theophilus, I did this so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That passage alone tells us that when we read these stories, the Gospels, we're reading eyewitness accounts to Jesus's actions and words. They, they, are, they don't allow us to read them as mere myth or as legends or as hyperbole. The authors themselves say these are eyewitnesses to what Jesus said and did. And when we read those Gospel records of Jesus, we discover that the man loved his Bible. Jesus was shaped by the Bible. He used the Bible. He submitted to the Bible, and he pointed all of his apprentices to the Bible as the true story. We don't have time to go through all of his words and the things that he said about the Bible in particular, but there's this incredible story of Jesus being tempted by Satan in the Gospels, and it gives us a a kind of a, a glimpse, or it gives us a great example of how Jesus thought about and use the Bible. So in this section of the Gospel of Matthew, we meet the source of all false stories, the original liar, Satan. And he spins false narratives to deceive humans. And then he tries to do that with Jesus. But Jesus overcomes Satan's false stories by going to the Bible. Over and over and over, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written, and then he quotes particular Bible passages. So, for example, when tempted to believe that Jesus could supply life for himself, uh, apart from total dependence on the Father, Satan says to Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you turn these stones into bread? In other words, why don't you not depend on God and live as a human? Why don't you just take life into your own hands? Jesus responds in Deuteronomy 8.3, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's that shorthand for man shall live on what God's words say as found in the sacred texts that shaped Jesus's life. Jesus believed that the Bible was sufficient. He believed that it was sufficient for his ultimate and deepest needs. Now, Satan tried to get him to take life into his own hands, and Jesus said, no, no. I'm going to live by the words that come from God. I'm going to entirely entrust my life to him. Then Satan tried to trip him up by basically misapplying the texts themselves. Satan twisted and turned the Bible just a little bit. And so he challenges Jesus. If you're truly the son of God, I want you to huck yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. And I want you to test God's faithfulness. You know, the Bible says that angels will come and they'll catch you before you hit the ground, doesn't it, Jesus? This is what Satan did in, in spinning his false story. And Jesus responded to the twisting of the Bible 
with the Bible itself. He quotes, it is written, Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus believed that the Bible was sufficient to guide him and govern his life according to God's will and God's supply. And Jesus also believed that the Bible was coherent. Jesus believed that the Bible was actually understandable. He believed that there were false and true interpretations, ways of applying the text. What Satan tried to do was get him to misread the Bible and misapply it. But Jesus knew that the scripture is coherent and that the scripture has to be read in its entirety to grasp its full teaching and instruction. Jesus full well knew that reading one passage out of context without the rest of the passages did not give the whole counsel of God, the whole truth. And so he used the Bible to defend the Bible and rightly apply the Bible. Now, on that note, when we commit to the Bible as apprentices of Jesus, and we commit to the Bible as our authority, we have to know up front that it is an extremely sophisticated work. And to understand it takes work. It's sufficient. It's coherent. It's understandable. But to gain understanding, because the texts themselves and the authors were so sophisticated, brilliant, brilliant authors, we have to understand that it's going to take work. Let me give you an example. I have tried to get through Brothers Karamazov by the great Russian novelist Fyodor Dostoevsky multiple times, and I have never made it. Why? Why have I never made it through Brothers K? Well, there's a couple of reasons. When I'm reading Brothers K, there is stuff in that book that totally unsettles me. Like, I come across it, and I read it, and I'm like, I don't like the way that makes me feel. I don't like what I'm reading on the page. It's uncomfortable. Ivan's rant, in particular, is always so unsettling for me, and I have to stop. Also, in Brothers K, there's about a million names, it seems, for one character. Like, different names for the same character over and over and over, and it's super confusing. And so, Brothers Karamazov, it's a literary work, sophisticated, deep, meaningful. It, it has a purpose, and it was written by a brilliant foreign mind from a different culture. Now, I never make it through, honestly, because I'm usually trying to read Brothers K on vacation. So I approach it like I would read Harry Potter for fun. Now, don't get me wrong. Harry Potter is a great story, and it has layers of meaning, too. But honestly, it doesn't take a ton of work. Harry Potter is a relaxing read. Brothers K is not that. People have devoted their entire careers and PhDs, their dissertations, to exploring this work and its author. You know, I'd probably get a lot further through Brothers K if I just sat down and took a class from some professor on Dostoevsky. I need help from experts. Brothers K, it takes mental and emotional energy to get through it and to grasp its scope. Now, how much more? When we are engaging the mind of God through the stories of the Bible, it's going to take work. And Jesus, as a human, had put in the hard work his whole life. And so he was able to refute the false stories that the devil was trying to get him to believe because he understood how the Bible worked, how to apply it, how to interpret it. Now, in the final temptation, Satan tries to get Jesus to abandon God's will by gaining the kingdoms through false worship. It's the story of self-worship. Worship the way you want to. If Jesus would just bow down and worship Satan, there would be no cross and all the glory. This was the temptation. And Jesus responded with Deuteronomy 6.13. Away from me, Satan, for it is written. He goes back to the Bible. 
Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus believed the Bible was sufficient and coherent and understandable, that it took work to understand it. And Jesus believed that the Bible was authoritative. What it said was the overarching authority over his life. Jesus was so utterly shaped by the texts that when he was tempted to turn his allegiance over to anything or anyone other than God, his rebuttal was immediate and clear and unwavering. Any story that didn't align with the true story of God's love and intent to save the world through him was refuted immediately because Jesus was wholly submitted to the authority of the texts. Now, this word authority, it causes issues for all of us. It causes issues for me big time because our broken world abuses power and it oppresses people and establishes hierarchies that hurt humans. And all of it is fueled by abusive use of authority. And we Christians, if we're honest, and we should be, we have to be the first to admit that the Bible has been used in history as an authority to do damage. The Crusades, the African slave trade, um, the abusive subjugation and oppression of women, these were places and these are places where the Bible has been used uh, and misapplied to, to establish abusive authority. And we recognize this is wrong. And we, we have to recognize, and we would say, that in those cases, the Bible was being misread and misapplied and misused, which begs the question, is it possible that we're misusing the Bible today, right now? And my answer is, of course it is. Uh, of course it is. We have to be that humble. I'm certain that my grandkids are going to look at some of what we're doing in 2019, and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, what in the world were you guys thinking? Where did you get that idea from the Bible? We don't see it in the Bible at all. And so the best thing that we can do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, in submitting ourselves to the authority of the Bible is pray, learn, grow, repent, and trust. Trust. And at the end of the day, we submit to the authority of the Bible as best as we can interpret it in this cultural moment with the power of the Holy Spirit and within the context in which we find ourselves, always remaining open to God's guidance as he grows us in our understanding and application of the texts. So the story of the Bible and its authority is counterintuitive. We don't submit to the Bible because God is angry and going to crush us. At the epicenter of the story is God giving up power, giving up authority, giving everything in an act of unconditional love to save us from ourselves. And Jesus knew this. He knew that he was going to be the one who would absorb all of the grossness and the rebellion and the impurity and the brokenness that we see recorded in the stories of the Bible and from the stories of our own lives. He knew that when the texts were promising a coming king that would rule perfectly, Jesus knew he was that king. When the text spoke of a suffering servant in Isaiah 53, Jesus knew that he was that servant. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead. And two of his disciples are journeying together on a road discussing all that has transpired over this past crazy week. And the resurrected Jesus makes an appearance. And these two disciples, they don't recognize him as Jesus, asks them, hey, What's been going on? What are you guys talking about? And they're shocked that this stranger hasn't heard uh, any, hasn't heard anything, hasn't heard about everything that's been going on. And so they 
end up explaining to the resurrected Jesus everything that's transpired with the cross and the Romans and and all these things, including the fact that some women among their friends, among their circle of friends, had gone to this crucified man's tomb and they found it empty. And then Jesus parts the curtains in this moment. He responds to their story saying, guys, <laughs> I mean, I'm interpreting here, but how foolish you are, he says, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so he rebukes them for being foolish and slow to believe what the story of the Bible had been saying all along. The disciples had been reading the Bible, but they were missing the point. The Bible wasn't a set of rules to be obeyed, and the Bible wasn't a smattering of instructions on how to live life well. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets means that Jesus started in Genesis, and he walked them through how humanity had broken everything, but that the story was always promising the hope of healing through his gracious life, through his death, and through his resurrection. Jesus' eyewitnesses, they would come to finally understand this. And their writings about Jesus' life and death and how his life and death shaped these communities that followed him after his ascension, that became the New Testament. And it is these documents, Old Testament, New Testament, these records, this expose of humanity breaking God's world, these historical biographies of Jesus, these letters that explained how Jesus's life, death, and resurrection shaped these communities and how our life should be lived in light of what he has done for us, these are what shape our community today. And so all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, is a grand story of God's grace and love and power being poured out for eternal flourishing, for our eternal flourishing. That's why we're building our church and our lives on the Bible. We orient our entire lives around the story of the Bible because it's the only story humanity has that offers healing to our suffering, not by our self-fueled efforts, but by a Savior who is kind and faithful. We submit to the authority of the Bible because it's an authoritative pointer to the one who in sacrificial love absorbed all of our wrong. And we build our lives on the Bible because we're part of its story. We are a community of people formed by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as Jesus followers, we become part of the Bible's unfolding story as we go into the world and do what he did. Blessings on you this week.